0: Welcome to the Talking Story podcast. We'll be your hosts for season one. I'm Lorenzo Roel flores Please, I'm Ezra Kikaway cook
1: And I'm Oceana Sawyer. In this space, as people of the global majority, we reflect on our experiences living here in Jefferson County, a semi-rural region of the Olympic Peninsula, which is primarily white folks.
0: This is us talking to us about us on this episode of talking story titled excavating whiteness me and Oceana will sit down with Tomoki Tomoki was a child of the forest he spent many long hours as a boy running through the woods of Port Townsend without any shoes on his family wasn't completely poor they were just hippies living in the glories of mother nature Tomoki's parents are Aikido masters so naturally, Tomoki was born to be a badass. From the tender age of three, he was doing backflips off of the one piece of furniture that they had in the house. As the land his family lived on got more developed, so did Tomoki's masterful ninja skills. With electricity came Jackie Chan movies, with hot water came showers, and before long Tomoki was wearing shoes. Today, Tomoki is active in the community of Port Townsend, working, playing the drums, acting, dancing, and making people laugh. We are so excited to have him on the episode today. Tomoki, I was excited to invite you onto this podcast because I have worked around you, with you, watched you just like for a lot of years. When I was younger, you were like really inspiring to me and then we got to like work together for a while.
1: How did you become this like small town celebrity? Mm-hmm. Especially in a town like this, that's so 90% white and it's in my rural mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and I, I watch your videos and they're just so fun and spontaneous and smart. and How did that arise,
2: do you yeah. think? I don't know completely. I just know... I started performing in high school. I was pretty shy. I definitely, like, until I got into high school, the thought of being in front of people in any way, I mean, just even social situations like this is nerve-wracking, but any kind of, like, where I have to speak or do anything in front of people is like, nah, thanks, I'm not going to do that, and so I got into high school, started doing theater, they had a drama class at the time, and I kind of discovered performance that way a little bit. I had learned to juggle with my best friend, and I had learned some of these kind of circusy type skills that were less usual for kids to know how to do. And so I entered a talent show with my best friend when I was, I think, a sophomore. And we did really well. We won the talent show, and then we got booked a couple times in town, like, by... I think the film festival and the wedding or a party here and there. And it was like, whoa, we can make money doing this. This is cool. <laughs> it was like five minutes of very silly, but we juggled and we did some flips and, you know, we just, it was like kind of a little variety show packed into five minutes. And I think that was the point when I was like, wow, I, people really like this. Like, this is something I could do. And also getting paid for it was like, whoa, that's yeah. kind of cool. I didn't know you could make a living doing that kind of thing so that kind of turned into just doing that more and more i had another friend that i'd put together a little acts with and we'd perform in different places and then at some point me and my brother put together our first fight scene and that became kind of a pretty big part of what nanda did was we'd take inspiration from action movies and we'd kind of do like parodies not direct parodies not like mm-hmm. our first one was the first fight scene we choreographed was a matrix fight scene cuz the matrix movies were coming out. I think it was the second matrix movie came out and we were like, let's make a fight scene and then we performed it before the shows for like the opening weekend. We went down in the Rose Theater and we did our little fight scene. <laughs> and then we just like ran in and it was like 2 minutes or something just like, and we had the whole like slow motion and yeah, it was very fun, and people were like, what? Because everybody's so psyched about those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just having that little live piece, I think, really was super fun. And so that turned into us performing more, and eventually I got my two best friends and my brother to join forces, and we wrote a show to help raise funds so that we could go to a dance competition because I was part of a dance studio. Mm. And that was the first show that Nanda did. It was a weekend. I think it was just one weekend, maybe three shows or something, three or four shows. Tons of people showed up and we came out of that being like, this is so fun. Can we just keep doing this? And so we did. You know, we started with like 10 minutes max of material and we'd get booked for people's events and parties and stuff. It was something that had, especially right then, Uh that wasn't happening in Port Townsend. It was just Mm -hmm. like, whoa, these kids that are actually doing something that is making a splash outside of Port Townsend even a little bit. Like we started getting booked in Seattle for gigs and stuff like that. And we sort of immediately started working as performing artists in this way that just was not normal for that time. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, maybe it still isn't really normal. It's very hard to do. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know of really any groups like that. The performing community is either very local-centric or contained. It's not, not very many contained.
1: Have broken out of here into yeah. Seattle
0: or no. And not a lot Washington of young people, or... people really are able to make vibes for themselves here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, we will talk about that in the Ave episode. Just, like, there's not a lot of young people that take something that they are passionate about and make something for themselves out of it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not a great economy for that. Either. Yeah. So I think Mm -hmm. to see a group of young guys do something that they were passionate about and was really unique and then present it to the community, everyone was like going wild for it. And then you guys didn't just do it for the community, but you did it for yourselves and you were able to like break out of this Mm -hmm. kind of trap.
1: Well, and then there's a couple of things too. I just want to go back to where you started with the shyness. Mm Mm-hmm. And how you talked about it, like even in present time. I'm wondering if performing isn't a way of being in the world, showing up, not quite yourself. Mm-hmm. So there's that kind of comfort in like being a character versus being yourself. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it was for me definitely an avenue of being able to connect with people outside of my immediate close friends where I felt more comfortable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that has its ups and downs when you then go into over a decade of making your living doing that. I think it had side effects that were also negative, like everything does, you know. But Mm -hmm. where that's your kind of only way to connect with people on a larger scale or whatever, you know, like that. It was really draining. I'd be like Mm -hmm. really drained from performances, but also it gives you energy and drains you at the same time. It's this Mm -hmm. weird thing, Mm -hmm. like socially would drain me because you're having to put yourself out there completely and hope that some of that comes back. But what comes back isn't the same kind of energy you put out. It's an mm-hmm. interesting. Like interesting. I love live performance. It's so like, there's nothing you get back
0: adrenaline. You get back.
2: Yeah, there is. And I think on a, if you just take the most holistic part of that, you really can be grounded in yourself. Then it can just be this really good interaction then you're you're sort of feeding this part of you that and it's like superficial energy i, I can't really explain it. it's like up here kind of energy but mm-hmm. you're not getting yourself back mm-hmm. then you come out of that you're like on this sort of high but then you just crash that's what happened to me anyway i would just mm-hmm. kind of crash emotionally which I would do even with regular social interaction. Like if I go out and just go to a party or whatever, where I'm just having to socialize, that would drain me too. It's like I'd have the same drain, but I wouldn't get the high of performing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from it. So it's like, then the high of performing is your go-to social interaction. You know, it's like, that's how I interact with people. And, Otherwise, I'm not really connecting with anybody. It's like just through the lens of performing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's super healthy to do for a long time, you know? And
0: then also, as a performer, you will develop a reputation that you are a social creature. Mm
1: -hmm. And so
0: as performers, you tend to have to be more present socially. You're expected to be because for your job you entertain people you put yourself out there and so they see that as applying to everything else in your life too mm-hmm. so you're the type of person people want to just talk to or ask a lot of questions or
2: mm-hmm. invite
0: to their party and you definitely as a performer get like tokenized or romanticized so I can see mm-hmm. how like that is really draining because you have to put so much of your life force into the performance mm-hmm. and then you don't have a lot left to kind of uphold those other social obligations that come with performance and being in the public eye as a performer.
2: Right.
1: And I loved how you you guys both talked about this, like the energy you put out in a performance is like coming from all your cells Mm-hmm. And what you get back is this sort of nice admiration, mm-hmm. but it, it's like you're serving a souffle mm-hmm. or a, a hearty stew, and what you're getting back is potato chips. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's like it's just not, and you could get a bunch of thousands, thousands of bags or of potato chips. Just so chips,
2: many potato chips. But yeah. they're
1: never going to replace <laughs> that stew you just served up right. that mm-hmm. was just so hearty and rich and came from all the, all the things. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And now I'm going to equate that to, I feel like what it's like for a lot of people who are listening to this, people of the global majority who feel like when they walk around this town, mm-hmm. what you're doing is you're performing. Right. Yep. Either you're performing whiteness or you're performing some characterization of whatever ethnicity you are. Mm-hmm. And then you have to interact with the response to that. And you're doing it at this level of, like, all power to the shields and answering questions or deflecting, you know, racist Mm
2: -hmm.
1: fuckery, and (laughs) I'm trying to say this because it's our podcast. Yes. And that's a question I've been having. We had Aaron Johnson here of Holistic Resistance. We had a, a week of workshops with different groups of people, people in black bodies, people of the global majority people in white bodies in an integration session. And throughout all these conversations, I keep asking myself is where is our humanity? Mm -hmm. Like when do we ever get to just show up as Mm -hmm. people, Mm -hmm. like just a person? And it's kind of interesting to talk to you guys about this question because you're also performers. So Mm -hmm. there's a way in which there's that, Mm -hmm. but then there's also a way in which you are people of Asian descent and identifiably. So you're walking around, you know, the world in this town in particular. I know this question might be convoluted at this point, but (laughs) (laughs) these are questions that float in my mind all the time, especially as I'm talking to you guys, like, what is it to be here in Port Townsend being the person you are or what is the person you are and what is the performance? Right. That's a good
2: question. Mm To be honest, it's hard. I still have a hard time distinguishing those things. Like, I'm I'm figuring it out. It feels sometimes like I don't know if I will ever be able to fully distinguish those two things. Because even with the performing thing, having started in high school, at this point in my life, it feels like so ingrained into who I am in, in Port Townsend. Like, one thing that can be really refreshing is to go places where you don't have the little small town everybody knows you for what you do you know Mm -hmm. and so you can just be you and people get to know you through that and i've been really enjoying that about not doing the nanda thing for a while is because i'm meeting more people in town where it's like they don't know what Mm -hmm. i do who i am and it's just i can just be me to them and then i feel like the connection i'm making is more genuine but as far as the whiteness goes it's like that's even more baked into like this confused thing where I grew up really trying to be white. If I think about it, like I didn't always think of that as like, a, oh, this is something I'm doing to cope. It was just like this is just what you do. This is just how it is. That's it's not success. It's yeah. It's just like it's just part of life. I personally for very long time didn't really know that that was something that might be not a good thing to do you know what i mean like mm-hmm. it's just it's just part of life mm-hmm. and so to be able to separate that out for myself is hard at this point i'm i'm having trouble picking that apart where mm-hmm. i can distinguish some things or i have memories where i can be like okay that was that and then I have a lot of things where it's like, I don't know. I don't know if that was just me kind of passing as white enough or something. Or you know what I mean? Or like mm-hmm. people just being like, yeah, you're you're white enough. You're another white kid. Like, I would get that a lot of like, Tom's also basically white. Like, whatever kind of thing. Those kind of things. And I'd always be like, wait, is that true? I don't know. I don't if know. I
0: experienced a lot of that too.
2: Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a weird thing because it's like... You're kind of like, okay, it's working. And one you have, like, all of these, like, different...
0: And then you're also like, I'm betraying my ancestors. <laughs>
2: yeah, like, it's not true. And also, do they really think that? Or are they just trying to not have to address this weird situation that we're in, which is that I am the only not-white person in my whole friend group. Yeah. And how do we relate to each other? Because we're all relating on this white level, and I can't do that unless I'm also white. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like... There's sort of that dynamic that would happen a lot. But we can continue down. You should answer the question. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. I know I, this is an interesting conversation. For me growing up, there was levels to there was different times in my life where I saw myself as Japanese versus seeing myself as white. Like when I was young, it was this exciting thing because it was like, oh my gosh, my family has this cultural thing that I can bring up and like we eat this type of food or my dad has this background that's super interesting story and it's so important to me that I don't want anyone to not know it mm-hmm. and then there was slowly a shift where I'd be in a group where everyone was white me included and I would see it as our whole friend group is white mm-hmm. myself included mm-hmm. and if there was someone that I became friends with who was a person of color especially if they were black for me it was kind of like oh we're like the white friends in a weird way i didn't feel like i deserve to refer to myself as anything else
2: yeah, I because agree. i had
0: convinced myself that i solely experienced white privilege mm-hmm. which i realized growing up i mean obviously i have privilege I'm not entirely a person of color, and also just in general, like I know it is a lot more difficult for some ethnicities in this country than like being Japanese. Like my experience does not compare to the experience of someone who's black in America. But I had still convinced myself as a kid that I really only experienced life as a white person, and then that's how people perceive me. And that wasn't true,
1: mm-hmm.
0: because when I got older and I reflected, people did not ever see me that way. Mm-hmm. Like, I got a lot of comments. And also why beauty standard and things like that, where it was just kind of like, oh, why is my face different? I'm mm-hmm. not, you know, doing enough or something, and then realizing it's like, oh, it's not people thinking that I have a weird face in the way of like, it's not normal, it's just, it's like, they don't perceive me as one of them. And then so then then there was experiences of being like, okay, so my life's a lie. (laughs) That kind of feeling of like, um, oh, everything is, it's different. And so I guess a turning point for me was in high school, I reconnected with the fact that I was Asian. And then I realized once I owned that and was able to bring it up and treat myself as a person of color, then came that level of tokenization and then came that level of like performing. Mm -hmm.
2: Because
0: when you are open about being a person of color, suddenly I find myself getting into arguments and defending points and having to make a case for why I am a person of color, or make a case as to why an issue revolving BIPOC issues is important to people, and feeling like you know taking this role of a defender, and also of just like diverting stereotypes, because mm-hmm. I'm sure you get this too, is also being someone who's Asian, in particular the racial stereotypes about being Asian are not that we're funny or bold or charismatic or any of those things. It's Mm -hmm. a lot more around being studious, being quiet. And I was not those things at Mm -hmm. all. So that was other thing was part of me also felt like I wasn't Asian because I was Mm -hmm. me. Because I was so much of a performer. Then I realized a lot of that performing was Honestly, it was that masking. It was that, like, you know, social interaction. is It's so right. similar to, like, that feeling you experience with a show where there's this big high and then there's this huge crash. Mm-hmm. And there's some times where you just don't want to do it mm-hmm. and people expect you to.
2: Totally, yeah. That all is very familiar. <laughs> um, one thing that I've noticed more recently, I definitely... see uh, For me, like... I kind of wish that I could have been more aware of things younger because by now I would have maybe been able to pick it apart a little bit further. Mm -hmm. But there just also wasn't conversations around me happening, like literally never happened. None of the brown people talked to each other. It was kind of weird. Looking back, it's like, whoa, that is fucking weird. (laughs) Like we didn't, we just didn't talk about shit. But it was there. We were all experiencing it. And I've had conversations with people who grew up in town now that are all like, Yeah, what the hell? What? We were all experiencing the same oh thing. But we never talked to each other about it. Like, this is the first time we're talking about it as adults. Like, we're, like, long into, like, this is weird. I think that's an interesting thing that I, it's got to still be kind of happening. And it's how maybe is it intent, the-
0: in a weird way, as it was put upon us? Right. Like, how did the environment of this community create that yeah. distance between
1: us? Yeah. where it I felt scary. Well that's, well, that's definitely systemic oppression. I mean, right. Because I'll just say, I grew up in a town just like Port Townsend. So what you guys are saying, imagine me doing exactly what you did. Yeah. You know, I'm just trying to be white adjacent, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the Barbie movie, <laughs> I've seen clips of the Barbie movie, and I'd be like the black Barbie. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, my hair would be straightened and curled, you know, mm-hmm. and I would be wearing the things and trying to be as close as I could be to, you know, white Barbie, mm-hmm. my, my white friends. And that wasn't even viewed as like, what are you doing? That is just what you did. So I I do, I can see that part of my own story. And then what you're questioning is like, how did that happen? Right. Because it's really true. When I was growing up too, when black people moved into the community, I kind of almost didn't want to associate because I was busy being as white adjacent Mm -hmm. as I could be. And if I started associating with the black kids, then maybe my white friends would think, oh, no, she really is black. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can not associate with her now. Mm-hmm. And you know what? That actually did happen. That literally happened to me in high school. Mm-hmm. I think white supremacy is set up to have black and brown people be as close to white as possible. And the easiest way to have that happen is to separate ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because not, as soon as we're in group... As soon as we're grouped, right. then then we start talking to each other. Oh, no. <laughs> and what? You know, all hell breaks loose from there.
0: <laughs> this is a really yeah. good time for... Can I have an anecdote? Please. Okay. So, as a kid, my brother and I were both Japanese on my dad's side. And to our knowledge, we were the only people. We only knew of us with that background. And I remember one day my mom was like, you know tomuki and his brother are japanese and i was like no they're not and she was like mm. yes they are and i was like how do you know that she's like oh, come on like i can tell like their names like they are japanese like my husband's japanese like i can figure it. and i'm just like well they've never said that so because i've never heard from your mouth that you were i was like i refuse to mm-hmm. believe it but a little part of me was hopeful because right. i thought you were so cool <laughs> and like as a kid i was I really, really wanted it to be true, but I I was so terrified to bring it up. And I also, weirdly, I remember feeling angry at my mom for saying that, like it was wrong. Mm. Like there was something in me internalized of calling someone out on being an ethnicity felt wrong. Mm. It felt like you're not supposed to say that. You're not supposed to call them that. You're not supposed Mm. to say that for them. We're all pretending to be white. We're all pretending to be white. And also, (laughs) it felt a weird internalized felt that it was almost a mean thing to say. I don't think I realized Mm -hmm. that at the time, but as a kid there felt like a bad word. To say your friend was black or to say your friend was Asian almost felt mean. Mm -hmm. And that was because of that internalized racism. Mm -hmm. Now, I feel like it's a compliment. Just like coming into my queer identity, like if someone tells me their friend's gay, I'm not going to be like, supposed to say that i'm gonna be like awesome (laughs) it's different so that was something i remember Mm -hmm. knowing my mom trying to tell us that you and your brother were japanese and me being like no Mm -hmm. um but eventually as i got older i was like okay yeah they are i still never like straight up asked you but i figured it out
2: Yeah, I am. I'm Japanese.
0: You are Japanese. (laughs) Thank you for confirming.
2: (laughs) Tomuki, I have a really important question. i am waiting years.
0: Are you Japanese?
2: What if I was just like, no. You're like, (laughs) I'm Korean. Shut (laughs) (laughs) up.
1: I'm Korean this whole time.
0: (laughs) No. So I knew that. And so you were really the only person of like any sort of high profile in my mind that I knew of that also had that background. We did theater together and we never did really roles together. And then one year when we did Spirit of Yule, they cast Mm -hmm. you as Cratchit and me as the Tiny Tim character. Mm -hmm. And I felt elated because I had never been cast having a person of color as a parent in Mm -hmm. a play, Mm -hmm. never. And that always felt like that wasn't on people's radar to think of. I was fine with it, but I didn't realize how much that meant to me until it was like, oh, this person playing my father actually logistically could Could potentially be. be related to me. And I felt suddenly like I wasn't playing the part of a little white girl and pretending that's what I was, but I was just playing this character and that I could actually be myself. That was the best year. I did that play for three years and that was the one year I felt safest. I felt really wonderful working with you. And this is the last part of this anecdote is that thing with like when we come together and how, you know, we can't we can't really mask it anymore. And it was you, me and Consuelo. <laughs> We had one scene together.
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) And suddenly we went from hiding the fact that we were like the people of color in the theater to like when we were backstage, the three of us, suddenly it was all we could talk about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so we had this little joke. We were like... The Asian the, station, because yeah, we, we had to the get to places, Asian station. and we would put our hands right on each other's shoulders and we'd go choo choo, <laughs> and we would walk through the like crowd of other actors, and we'd be like, choo choo coming through, Asian station, and it was so dumb, mm-hmm. but it was so I joyful, and the three of us would get in our places, and we had our one scene together, and we would look forward to that one scene <laughs> the three of us had together. And that was that first, like, one of those first feelings I had of that kind of, like, weird, like, solidarity of, like, mm-hmm. oh, there's a joy to this and to acknowledging it.
2: Yeah, that was also for another reason why that was the best year. For one, it was the last year.
0: Yes! I was so burned out of that <laughs> um, <shit.
2: laughs> But also, previous to that year, I had had to play... I played the Rum Runner, which was fine, but I also had to play Chetsamoka's son, Mm-hmm. In most of them and like it was just so awkward. It was from the very get-go, it was like, Why is this in here? And then the next year I was like, I don't want to do that scene, like that character, can we just not do that? And they're it like, What if we just really- changed? What's wrong with the character? It's like, well, the all of it, the dialogue, and also like everything. And <laughs> they're everything. like, Okay, we'll rewrite it. And then they kind of rewrote it. And but then it was just like one of those things where by the time I was given a script. And we were going to rehearsals like too late to change anything. I would have had mm-hmm. to like stop the entire process. So, yeah, that was hard. Yeah, and that yeah. was the first year they were finally like, you can play a different role completely, and that character is not part of the script at all. Which is like, I can't believe it took that long because,
0: yeah, why it did really two was white unnecessary. Women think they could write a scene with a native character, not cast someone native, and then like. Not really take criticisms about.
2: It was really bad, scene. yeah. So that was definitely the best. It felt like the best year, and it also they were just like, "Would you want to play a different track?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure, that sounds great." It wasn't like I auditioned, and they were like, "Yeah, Cratchit, you're gonna be Cratchit and mm-hmm. play this track." But it felt the most like, "Oh, I'm an actor being cast for a role." You know what I mean? Rather mm. than like. I get a, cast tomakey,
0: tomakey role.
2: Yeah, I get cast a lot, which honestly I don't mind. If especially if it's like you have the skill set, you like doing comedy, you like doing physical stuff. It's like, yeah, I do. So cast me for that stuff. But as far as acting goes, there's just a lot of acting where you're like you're cast as the one Asian person or not. You're cast as just the one brown person. Brown person, it doesn't else.
0: matter which type of brown it's like no it's so true
2: which happened starting in high school it was like playing the brown characters starting in high school for sure Mm -hmm. all types because also i kind of would get away with that a lot like people didn't know a lot of times
1: yeah so being racially mm -hmm. ambiguous helped
2: At least for them to justify like casting me. And you know, like when you're a kid, you're just like happy to be in a play. Like, I didn't care. Like, yeah, of course I'm going to be a shark in West Side Story. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I totally will be a shark. I'm not going to be a jet. But it's funny because my brother was cast as a jet. But he, at the time especially, is a bit more white passing. I think it's just very interesting. It's like I, I, I was a lot more, yeah, dark skinned and it was hard to tell. But I wasn't. As white passing. Mm -hmm. But looking back, I was like, whoa, he got cast as a jet.
0: I definitely had that experience with my brother. He is a lot more white passing than me. Yeah. To a point where one time we were having a conversation, he's like, we don't experience like racism. And I was like, (laughs) uh, I do. (laughs) And he was like, what? (laughs) And I was telling him like just some of the little things I'd experienced at work. Someone just coming up and I'm like bagging their, and they're like, shouldn't you be back in Hong Kong for the Olympics or just some (laughs) random bullshit thing, you know, that kind of stuff all the time. And I'm just like, I mean, it's not like insane. It's just like regular racism, you know, just the average level stuff. But my brother brother was just kind of like, I've never once gotten that. I mean, part of it, it might be a gender thing too, just because Mm -hmm. being someone who people perceive as female, like there's a little more of like a bravery to like walk all over me. right? (laughs)
1: Um,
0: And so especially men are a lot less filtered around me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and especially in customer service. Which my brother does not work in, so there's just like a level of that. Right. I always have been darker skinned than him. I've always had darker hair than him. He has blue eyes. I have dark brown eyes. Mm-hmm. My face shape is a lot more like signifying being Asian, and so like I think a lot of it too is that level of yeah. how much you quote unquote pass right. does affect that experience at least. But we both share the same experiences with wanting to connect with our culture. So like that is right. across the board.
2: Okay, I have a question. I'm curious about, sometimes I catch myself being like, I don't know how to word this right, because grateful is not the right word, but um, when somebody is being more overtly racist or just, yeah, whatever it is, I kind of prefer that to not knowing. So that's a thing, right?
0: Yes. Okay. That's a thing. I much prefer it.
2: It's kind of strange because it feels like wait I don't want people to be more racist to me, but I would prefer to know that that's what you're being right now than to be like wait are you, what what's what going on say? here yeah what like or like yeah am I being treated differently because we right can gaslight now, or... ourselves
0: into believing that it's exactly. fine exactly it's like, oh it's nothing but if it's overt you can't and you can tell someone and they'll be pissed off and you'd be like yeah. And, then, right? <laughs> and at
2: least you can just know. At, at that point, it's like, okay, well, that was that. And I can yeah. move on. But not knowing, and I think it's for me, too, it just goes back to the whole childhood of having so much of that mm-hmm. unknown. Like, wait, I don't know. Looking back, I don't know. Was that just being brown in a white place? Or was that just being me in this place?
1: I wrote this down because you just said it earlier here. I wasn't Asian because I was being me. Mm -hmm. So that piece about is me being me, am I enacting blackness Mm -hmm. or am I enacting whiteness or am I just being me? Which it can be a
0: combination. Yeah. Yeah. And also that's the thing is we can take inspiration from other things. Plenty of white people have an appreciation for music that be considered black music. And it can impact part of their life without them fully taking it. There is that level to it. Cause there is that like, when you realize that you are reclaiming, you know, a culture or a heritage in some sort of way that you want to be like, okay, how do I embody this enough where I'm legit about it? Mm-hmm. But I think also to a degree you're built and people are made and a lot of those experiences can be impactful. And so having different layers to it, mm-hmm. I mean, I listen to primarily like British rock and metal. It's definitely not Asian music in any way. And I don't listen to it because my mom's white. That's not why. It's just my personality and like the kind of music I'm drawn to. Part of it's the fashion around the music and the fact that I resonate with it from like a gender standpoint. Part of it is like the loudness or the chaos of the music and that like with my neurodivergency, it really speaks to me and helps calm my mind. And so I think there's just so many different levels to each person and it's just important to make sure you accept your race as part one asset to who you are. It's not the entirety of who you are, but it's letting it in and letting it have a voice in who you are and like not trying to drown it out with something else is Mm. like the important thing.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: That's well said.
2: Yeah, I agree. And it can be hard to do that. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like anyway. Yeah. It feels like it can be hard to do that, no?
0: Yeah. I honestly, I, I don't know about you, but like there is, I do find sometimes a difficulty to connect with my Japanese heritage, especially because the idea of Japanese culture in America is very much surrounding anime and kawaii mm-hmm. and that sort of side of like pop culture. Mm-hmm. Which, A, I'm not into cutesy shit, so that doesn't... (laughs) And two, I don't really watch much anime. I appreciate it, it's just, it's an animation style. But I am around a lot of white people that genuinely believe in some way, whether they say it or not, like that they're somehow more Japanese than me Mm
1: -hmm. because
0: of their consumption of anime. And the main reason I've stayed away from... A lot of anime and manga is because it's been used to fetishize me mm-hmm. a lot growing yes. up. Mm-hmm. And so even though a lot of it isn't sexual, I have a negative connotation and I have some anxieties and discomfort looking at the type of images and stuff, even when they're not sexual, just because of a lot of the Unconsensual comparisons that have been drawn to me when I was younger and just a lot mm-hmm. of that kind of weird stuff And then also knowing from my dad who grew up in Japan that that culture of like women being infantilized mm-hmm. and Fetishized for that and it comes from a place of horrible sexual repression that's in Japanese culture and it's like the worst side of the of Japanese culture just like how we have tons of you know that body issues and things and stuff in american culture and stuff too it's it's like that but japan capitalizes off of us consuming that stuff Mm -hmm. and i don't know and for me it's like the parts of japanese culture that i want to appreciate is like the food and some of the traditions of more rural areas of japan and stuff Mm -hmm. that kind of idea of like community almost like some of the places are almost like socialist where they're like very small towns and everyone has their little role in that Village or community and there's that kind of safety net and like stuff like that. That Mm -hmm. is really interesting to me But yeah, I can't really connect to that because I don't live in Japan,
2: right? Yeah, I think that there's sort of that distinction of connecting to your roots where you came from But also recognizing you're not that I was born here
1: Mm
2: -hmm. I'm not Japanese. I'm you know, Japanese American. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm from here I can't just be like, this is how Japanese people do it. I'm Japanese. And for me too, I wasn't raised by my Japanese dad. I'm raised in a super white town. So it's like that Japanese side of me is f- super distant in that way. Mm-hmm. Like I much more relate to the Japanese American experience than I do the Japanese experience.
0: Yeah. It's a I, different I don't thing. know what it is. Yeah. I don't and it's not like I can afford to go to Japan to like connect. And also part of me does feel nervous about even doing that because I I, I don't know, I feel like some part of me sometimes feels like it will be taken away from me. If I go then I will suddenly feel invalid and then everything I've built strength-wise upon myself of like (laughs) accepting my identity will just go out the window.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. You know, we have that in the African-American experience. (laughs) You go to Africa And the people in Africa will use the same word that they use to refer to white people. That's a thing in Japan, too. They'll use the same word to refer to Mm African-Americans. And I've heard a couple of really intense stories about black feminists getting really, like, ferociously mad in Africa at African people calling them essentially the same word they use for white people. Mm -hmm. Like, no, Yeah. And so... Your fear is not based on nothing. But I think what you're both saying is there is something powerful about coming to a sense of yourself Mm -hmm. ethnically and any other way you socially locate yourself. There is something about maybe the ways that we were raised, conditioned, socialized that requires a level of. I mean, when you say sovereignty, like acquiring your own sense of who you are, mm-hmm. uh, regardless. And that's, that's a scary space. Mm-hmm. And it's not for the faint of heart. It would be so much easier to just fall into the conveniently already made categories, mm-hmm. you know, either the really Japanese category or the. African categories or the African American or the Japanese American, it would be so easy to fall into Mm -hmm. any of those. But what I hear in this conversation is maybe there's another path. And I kind of feel like that's what so many of us are up to in this town is Mm -hmm. like reclaiming ourselves just for ourselves
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and not in response to, but being on that journey. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's just all there is. Is just to be on the journey, (laughs) yeah, and know that you have friends who are kind of on the journey with you. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's kind of like that's what life is. (laughs) It is (laughs) on this journey, but yeah, I I think that was well put. It feels like all of those things we're kind of navigating it all simultaneously, and it's
0: easier when we don't separate ourselves and when we can like actually talk about them. That makes it a lot more of an easy and almost, it's just a better journey when you can talk to someone about it. Mm -hmm. Because it almost feels exciting and you almost feel proud of yourself. Like, oh, look at me. Look at me. I'm a traveler. Traveling. (laughs) I'm journeying.
2: It is. I, I think it is. The first part of me is like, wait, starting to talk about it in your adult life is like, wait a minute. It can feel a little bit like stubborn part of you is like, wait, no, I, if I was going to do that, I wanted to do that way. Like I wanted that before, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, why am I just getting that now?
0: And you realize things. It's funny. Cause you think that it's like leading up to when we reach this breaking point, we reclaim ourselves that all of that before is before. And we didn't realize any of it. And then from now on, we're going to notice things, right. but it's been my experience that as soon as I've reached that point that I can almost, reanalyze everything leading up to it and it wasn't worth nothing and i can still have oh yeah and that's cool like i can look back and be like i've had so many white friends but all of the friends that i've gotten closer to on another level have happened to be people of color (laughs) like that can't be a complete coincidence it's -hmm. like why was there a certain level of safety and i mean i do have some like very close white friends but like those were the friendships that formed weirdly easier there was less resistance. Or just looking back at normal things that I didn't realize could have been racism, like being stopped at mm-hmm. the border every time we went to Canada and just like pulled into questioning or just comments or little things like that. And it, mm-hmm. it is kind of nice to reanalyze because then it gives yourself that feeling of like, you weren't just imagining all of those icky feelings that they were right. like those things you felt but didn't acknowledge. Like mm-hmm. going back, you're like, oh, that was real.
2: Mm-hmm. That
0: was valid. I kind of have a feeling of like pride, even though I couldn't see it, I was able to recognize it somewhere. And to protect yourself, it's good to know that you have those instincts.
1: So, okay, this has been a long, rich (laughs) journey. Maybe that last question that we were thinking about, maybe we can all answer this question. Like what are our dreams and hopes for the future, given like this ground we've traversed in this conversation? Or just in general, what what would be some hopes and dreams you would have for yourself or for the community?
2: Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm just really good at being in the moment. <laughs> That's my positive excuse. Mm-hmm. But also there's a little bit of the same thing where you're like, I don't like to state too much about what I want because then if it doesn't happen.
0: You
1: feel that.
2: There's a letdown. Yes. <laughs> I don't know, maybe that's not a great coping mechanism. Mm. But yeah, um,
1: that's fair. That's really fair.
2: Like I definitely have dreams and goals, but I've had so many in the past that haven't ever happened that I've started to learn to be like, okay, I don't I don't need to really want certain things. <laughs> and also things change. You mm-hmm. you change what you want, what you really want. And in the end, Sometimes the things that I feel like I really want, I've gotten to the point where I'm like, I don't think they're ever gonna happen. You know, as far as like on a whole scale, it's maybe it's too pessimistic, but it's like, yeah, like the state of the world that we're in, it can be like, wow, it seems like humans are gonna have to really do a lot of working together to get ourselves out of some of these situations we've worked ourselves into. Yeah, And it can be a little bit of a doomsday kind of mentality.
0: I think for me, goals-wise, it does feel a little... I share some of your feelings, Tomuki, but for me, it's about feeling like my goals do not reflect what they should reflect, because there's this pressure on my generation to save us. And that has always been on us from the beginning of like, hey guys, we fucked up the world. When you're adults, you get to fix it. And my goals are like I feel selfish because it's like, I want to make movies. I want to act. I want to do things that seems totally pointless in the scheme of things. And so many of my friends want to be like environmentalists and things. And I'm like, am I a bad person? But like, I'm really bad at science, like really bad at science. And I can't (laughs) see myself being at all helpful. I hate, gardening like the most connected to nature is like I like looking at waterfalls and hiking sometimes but I'm a performer and I'm a creative and my goals are big but yeah a part of me feels guilty (laughs) for having those goals Mm -hmm. and then again to follow up on what you were saying about feeling like you don't want the letdown that's a big thing too Mm. because I always have friends that are like you're so talented you're going to be such a big director and I'm like don't say that like don't say that because we don't know that and i don't want to like let myself believe in that little fantasy because it kind of hurts because it's like mm-hmm. i know that that's very unlikely and there is a chance a part of me is like i couldn't be a big director that could happen because i do want to be known for a body of work like that does feel important to me and like i want to be a, an impactful creative But thinking about that is very like,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: it feels really scary because it means you're accepting the fate of that letdown and that feeling of failure.
2: Yeah. What you said about feeling like what your passion is, what your interests are, are not helpful things is, it's an interesting one because it's like you can so easily equate people who are going into environmental like helping stuff it's like okay that has a direct positive impact to the state of our world Mm -hmm. and we can sort of see that and i feel like with art there's a little bit it's removed there's some somehow where we in the way that we think about things it might just be like a conditioning thing where we we separate that out to like not direct impact to fixing these issues that we're facing right now. We
0: talk about the issues, we don't do anything about them a lot of the times.
2: Yeah, or it's just for pure enjoyment. For people to get inspired by or just...
0: Feel things.
2: Yeah, just to, to have a nice time witnessing or whatever, just to be a part of. Especially working in the arts for my whole life, I do the same thing where it's like I'm not doing anything useful ever with my life, like I'm not helping anyone. I don't know how to connect directly those dots of like, this is how this exactly helps. I just have a feeling that it really, really does.
0: It also feels kind of like pretentious because I don't want to be that creative. Is like, this is why what I'm doing is important because I kind of want to just let it speak for itself because deep down I'm doing it. I'm going to do it no matter what. I'm going to create my art, whether I think it's important or not. And that's the cruel truth. If it wasn't doing anything, I'd still feel the need to make it. And so saying that it is making good difference sometimes feels like I'm just trying to, like, put myself on a pedestal.
2: Yeah, there is a balance. What I was trying to say is that I, mm-hmm. and it might just be to help justify myself in what I do, but, <laughs> but I really do think if we didn't have that, the state of the world would be in such a worse place without art. It's one of those trickly down things. It's not like a direct... Thing that you can do. It's like sort of the thing where you take certain species away from a forest or something and then everything is out of balance and it's whack until you put that, until you reintroduce whatever yeah. was missing. And it's not a direct impact. It's like it's the whole, how everything works together that makes it work. And I feel like creating art for each other in whatever form is one of those things where mm-hmm. it's hard to see the direct impact, positive impact, but I just don't see how it doesn't have a really positive impact on the rest of things. And Mm -hmm. we need it. We need it. So I don't think those goals are selfish in any way or not good goals to have. They're just as important. It's just that we have a hard time connecting the direct impact.
0: Like the earliest hominids, they drew on caves. Mm -hmm. And it's like, why was that? And then it's also like, actually, I'm realizing as you're saying this, it's like also with us all having some sort of external cultural heritage too that's beyond our whiteness. It's also like a lot of other cultures in the world, like art is so... It's not questioned. It's Mm -hmm. not questioned. And all kinds of art, whether it's body modifications or if it's dance or singing Mm -hmm. or, you know, painting with mud or like any of it. There's so many different ways that it can express, but...
2: Yeah, and it's even just in inspiration. Like you can inspire somebody else not to do the same thing you're doing, but to do something entirely different. But what you're doing will generate that energy that Mm -hmm. will inspire them to do, and that has huge effects. I've witnessed those effects before, and it's crazy. It's like, whoa, I didn't know it was that powerful, but it really is.
0: We just made a full circle because we are talking about performing and how we put so much of ourselves out and we don't get much of the same thing back. It's a different thing we get back. And so we have to learn how to sustain ourselves with that. But I guess it is true because if we're putting our souls or something out, maybe that does balance the social ecosystem essentially in a way like we give pieces of like our souls while other people, you know, it's maybe their brain or their practice, their labor. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Nice way to tie that back to the beginning. Because, as both of you guys have been talking, what feels like really true to me is that if what you're putting out is true, then it will have resonance. Whatever the goals we have about being a well-known director or performer, the celebrity part, going chasing that is the thing that is a part of the you know the culture. That's the, the white supremacist cultural piece of mm-hmm. like, okay. Mm-hmm. And even the conversation around, does it have direct impact that is still dominant culture because mm-hmm. what you guys just said was true in other parts of the world, impact is not measured by that direct thing. Impact okay. is measured by a system of responses and feedback, mm-hmm. right? That's actually how the world, how the natural world exists. All of the creation exists in that way of every being putting something out into the system, and the system having a feedback. Mm -hmm. That is actually what is happening. We don't even have to name it. We don't have to look for it. We don't have to create systemic, you know. It is just happening. Mm -hmm. So really, I think the trick is to just notice. Mm -hmm. That's all there is. Maybe shift your attention from, am I being recognized? Mm -hmm. To, is the work I'm doing true? And does it feed me? Mm Because if it feeds me, then it's probably going to feed somebody else. It has has the best chance, maybe, of feeding somebody else. Mm -hmm.
0: I think that's how
1: we survive your apocalypse. Right. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. On that note, thank you so much for um, being here. You guys, this was so much fun. I really enjoyed it.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Yeah.
1: This was cool. This was really fun. Thank you.
2: Really fed my soul.
1: Where we ended there in this conversation around what is the value of the arts as expressed through us as people of the global majority and as individuals. That was such a rich conversation. And we're going to pick up there in our next episode with Camellia Jade, where we look at how the arts can be something that brings us together as a community. I hope you'll join us.
0: We appreciate you for listening to this episode of Talking Story. Music is provided with permission by Ben Wilson and Camilla J.
1: Talk and Story is a project of well-organized and has enjoyed the support of the Port Townsend Arts Commission, Jefferson Community Foundation, Finn River Farm and Insidery, and the Community Equity Initiative, as well as private, in-kind, and monetary donations.
0: If you'd like to support us, please go to well-organized.org to make a donation to the Talk and Story podcast. That's well-organized.org. Thank you.